Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Marta Zaraska about her book, Growing Young, How Friendship, Optimism, and Kindness Can Help You Live to a Hundred. Now you may be thinking to yourself, a hundred? I'm not sure how appealing that is. Well, in our interview, Zaraska has a surprising response for you. And it's important to say at the outset that Zaraska's aim isn't really to show us just how to prolong our years, but to help us understand how every one of our days between now and, if we're lucky, 100, might be full and rich and immensely gratifying. And she helps us by taking us into the science of human thriving. What she discovers leads us not only to a better understanding of our own nature, but also to a deeper connection with one another. Marta Zaraska, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for inviting me, Eric. I'm so glad that you're here, and I'm excited to talk about your new book, Growing Young, How Friendship, Optimism, and Kindness Can Help You Live to 100. And so I I would like to start off with a question that I think is going to surprise a lot of people. So everyone I know is doing something with their diet. They're watching what they eat or they're not eating something. Um, and it is under the guise of, of health. Um, and the wonderful thing about your book is that it, it shows us that this might be a very limited perspective on what we think about when we think about being healthy or well. Um, so all those folks out there that are, that are looking at their plates or their refrigerators so intensely, oh. right? What is this vision that you have about maybe looking up for a moment? So one important thing I want to start with is that I never say that diet and exercise are not important because they are still important. Uh, Maybe certain things we do around dieting and exercise are not important or at least far less important than we think. So for example, fat diets, supplements, some kind of miracle foods, some of them at best do nothing and some can actually hurt your health. Uh, But looking at the bigger picture, what I'm saying is that even though diet and exercise in general, healthy diet and some physical activity are important for your health, there are things that we often overlook while exactly we are anxious and staring into our fridges. We forget about things that matter more for health and longevity. And there is so much research on this and has been around for quite a while, yet somehow it didn't make it to the public mind. And I'm talking here about things like friendship, uh, quality of your romantic relationship, kindness, volunteering, your personality, where, whether you are neurotic, whether you are conscientious, for example, uh, optimism, things like that, which actually have been shown in research to be even more important than diet and exercise. And just to show you some numbers, uh, for example, generally in research, diet and exercise can lower your mortality risk if you do it well, so healthy diet and good exercise, can lower your mortality risk anywhere between 20 and 30%. 
which is quite a lot. But when you think about your social connection, for example, so having uh, trusted friends, loving spouse, uh, knowing your neighbors, if you have all these things going on, this can lower your mortality risk by even over 60%. So that's a huge difference it's far more important than your diet and exercise. Actually being socially connected is even more important than quitting smoking if you are a heavy smoker, which of course doesn't mean you should smoke, but it just gives you a perspective of how important these things are. And and I think one of the, the wonderful things about this book is that, I'll just take a step back, you are a science writer. So part of your um, approach is to delve into this research that a lot of us are not seeing or that somehow it's not reaching a general public. Could you just tell us, just give us a glimpse of the amount of work you did that is the background of this book. I just want listeners to know how thoroughly documented it is. So as you said yourself, I'm a science journalist and I've been a journalist for over 20 decades now. Uh, sorry, two decades, 20 years I met, of course. And, uh, and I write for uh, Scientific American. I write for Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, um, Discovery Magazine, New Scientists, and some other publications as well. And uh, Growing Young is my second book. And the research that went to it was definitely, there was a lot of reading of scientific papers. I've read uh, over 600 research papers to write Growing Young, and I've talked to dozens of scientists in a very, um, from very varied um, disciplines, uh, neuroscience, anthropology, marketing, uh, Jap- Japan studies, lots and lots of different um, disciplines. And I had a lot of fun as well. I traveled as well for the book. I took part in some experiments. I, I helped catch wild mice um, in the forests around Oxford with some University of Oxford um, scientists. I did experiments on myself with help um, from scientists from King's College London. Uh, so there, there was, uh, it was fascinating um, all doing all this. And it did also change my life and the way I approach uh, health and, uh, and longevity myself. So you had mentioned in your earlier answer that there's this that somehow this research hasn't made us hasn't made it into our kind of collective awareness. Do you have any ideas about why it is before we get to the research itself and and how it does seem to be so eye opening? I'm wondering why. And here I know that you're a global citizen, so I'll keep referring to North America, um, where I can speak with a little more confidence. Our eyes are sort of close to this awareness? Does it have something to do with, with preconceptions about the connection between the mind or body? Or, or you know, is it because we think of health equals bodies? Mm-hmm. What is the... I think there may be two reasons for that. And the first reason is that in generally in our Western culture these days, we really like things that are easily easily easy to measure you know uh, when we're talking for example about healthy diet we like to know that we've eaten our 100 grams or how, however that is in ounces of broccoli per day uh, that we've had enough of vitamin b12 or vitamin c and we like to pop the supplement because it's just so easy to measure so quantifiable you know uh Definitely the fact that there are so many apps out there that measure things for you. Um, your, um, your, how many steps you've taken, for example. Has it been already 10,000 today or not yet? Uh, so it's really easy kind of to visualize, to measure, to be sure that you are doing your work 
on the path to a long and healthy life. Whereas we're talking about friendship or kindness or empathy or optimism, it's much harder to measure. You cannot say whether you've been kind enough today because you did five kind things, right? Because what if you did also six mean things? So uh, also how, how good is, are your friendships? So these things are extremely important, but they're, they don't fit into this cultural narrative where we measure things, then we have an app that helps us, you know, gain some badges for having certain amount of that thing. And then also we can post in our social media saying we've done the 10,000 steps. So it's a little bit different, right? And the second reason, perhaps even more important, is that there is no money in friendship or kindness and things like that. There is nobody selling you anything. There are no products out there that are being advertised to you. Uh, when we are thinking about diet, there are so many you know, dietary supplements, some miracle foods that somebody's selling, fat diets and products that surround it, right? Um, then the same with health, all the gadgets, all the apps, or the exercise classes, all, all the, you know, uh, health watches, and so on, money is being made. And if money is being made, you're going to hear about those things. And whereas a walk with your friend is for free, and the same is, you know, be making a tea for your coworker, the kind act is also for free. So um, that's why I believe it didn't make it really to, to the popular um, knowledge. Well, that makes perfect sense. Thank you for that answer. Well, when you begin to to take people into this research, where do you like to start? Um, you know, now that you have a chance to talk to people outside of a kind of commercial exchange, or you're not communicating with them through an app that's quantifying yeah. their health, and you have them in front of you, um, what is a way you found to kind of open open up this this way of understanding our human relationships in regard to our health? I mean, first of all, that's important thing to understand here, that there is nothing new agey about it. Sometimes people assume that when we are talking, you know, kindness or optimism, friendships, this sounds like a new agey stuff, right? Uh, but it's anything but. It's extremely biological, extremely physiological, and has been tested in research, both uh, epidemiological research, also lab research on the level of cells and genes and animal research and uh, and uh, randomized trials. So just it's very, very physiological. And the reason for that is that we have evolved this way. When you think about it, you know, we are social apes, just like our cousins, the chimpanzees, for instance, we need our tribe to function well. We evolve to be with others. And if we are not, then a lot of things happen and change in our body that have this downstream negative effects on our body. So for instance, you know, when you are lonely, uh, that meant for our ancestors usually being alone on the savanna. And that initiated a cascade of changes, hormonal changes in your body to prepare you for things that could happen when you are alone on the savannah. So for example, when you were in your tribe, you were much more likely to be infected with viruses, which as we very well know these days, spread among other humans or other apes. Whereas uh, when you are alone, you are much more likely to be wounded, for instance, by wild animals or having accidents. So when you are alone, your body starts to prepare you for bacterial infections and to conserve energy. It, it dials down the antiviral response, since you are less likely to catch the virus, but upgrades the bacterial protection. So in modern terms, it's inflammation. So when we are alone these days, you know, we are usually 
alone, feeling alone in a very different way than our ancestors. We are not stranded on a savanna. Uh, we are feeling lonely in our apartments among crowds. And it's also usually very chronic. And this means that we are cro- our bacterial inf- response is chronically up. It means inflammation these days. And inflammation, as you may know, uh, unfortunately leads to a lot of diseases that are a plague, you can say, these days. So, for example, diabetes, cardiovascular problems, uh, things like that, right? So, so in a way, all the systems that we evolved in the past to live in a tribe and to function the best, these days, very often, the, they misfire. They don't work the way they were supposed to. For example, our fight or flight response, which is also the, something that connects our bodies and our minds, uh, doesn't function well because our stressors are very different than they used to be. So you you talk a little bit about stress in the book and the way in which could could you just give us a kind of glimpse of like how something like the HPA axis works? Um, you had mentioned the hormones, but it's it's just fascinating to see how the hormonal cocktail in your brain starts to make these huge bodily changes, which then register in terms of you know chronic disease or you know depression. Um, so, so many of us are quite understandably stressed and lonely right now. What's happening in our brain? So what happens when you're stressed, that you have this fight or flight response, as we commonly know it, and part of this is something, as you've said, HPA axis or hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. It's a mouthful for something that connects basically your brain with the cascade of hormones that get released in your body. So when you when you get stressed by something in the past, it would have been lion creeping upon you on a savanna. Today, it can be your mortgage uh, that needs to be paid. And uh, your hypothalamus in your brain uh, gets the message. And then a cascade of hormones get released. Basically, one hormone prompts a release of another hormone and so on and so on. Some of them involve, for example, cortisol or adrenaline. So things that we may commonly know, cortisol, the stress hormone. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, if it gets normally in the savanna, uh, this would calm down very fast because the, the stressor would go away, the, let's say the lion, and everything will calm down, the systems would get back to normal. But unfortunately these days, our stressors are very kind of low-burning but often chronic. So this HPA axis doesn't function the way it should, and it's it's kind of turned on on a low level permanently. So for example, the cortisol and the stress hormone will become dysregulated. And when it's not functioning well, it has a lot of downstream effects on our body. Uh, in, for example, the way fat gets metabolized in our, in our, in our body with um, all the downstream consequences for our cardiovascular system, for instance. But the stress response is not the only thing that connects our, our social lives and, and our mind life, you could say, with our body. There is also a lot of so-called social hormones. Uh, For instance, oxytocin, which is often called the laugh hormone, or serotonin, vasopressin, endorphins. Uh, These are all hormones that get released when we uh, are in contact with other people. For example, when you are holding hands with someone, you can get oxytocin. When you are dancing with other people, you can get endorphins. And on one hand, these hormones give us all these feelings, for example, of being connected, trusting other people. Uh, But on the other hand, they also have very strictly physiological effects. So oxytocin, for instance, it has effects on your bone growth. It can prevent osteoporosis. Uh, 
endorphins are natural painkillers, while uh, serotonin has impact on our liver, for instance. So there, are, so they have, have on one hand this kind of emotional effects, but on the other, very physiological effects directly on our health. That's wonderful. I, I, I can imagine a listener hearing you talk and saying, okay, okay, so, you know, I, I think about my body and I think about what I eat and I think about, um, you know, what whether I exercise or not and how much sleep I get. How does one begin to think in a in a scientific or or practical way about my capacity for empathy or the quality of my friendship or whether or not I'm mindful? I mean, what does that vision of of one's life look like? I think it's first of all about changing your perspective and realizing that those things are extremely important for your health. Uh, And once you see them like this, you start incorporating them into your life. And I think that somewhere deep inside, we all know whether our marriage is happy, whether our friendships are good enough, uh, whether we are kind enough. You you don't have to measure everything. Sometimes you just know, right? Uh, Maybe there are some people who would have problems defining the quality of their friendships. But I think most of us can say, yes, I have good friends or I don't have, you know, good enough friendships and I need more. This is also something that people often ask me. They say, how many friends do I need to to be good enough, right, to live long? And this is the same question I actually asked to uh, Professor Robin Dunbar at the University of Oxford. That's the the, um, anthropologist who also invented the Dunbar number, that how many friends we can have. And um, and so he told me that it really depends. For some people, it can be one person, one friend. For another person, it needs to be free. And for another person, may need as many as seven really close friends. And you know where you are. For example, if you have just one really good friend and you feel that this is all you need, that all your needs are being met, that you you can really connect, that you know this person will be there for you, that you can tell them all your secrets, all the thoughts and feelings that you have and share everything, then you are fine. But there will be another person for whom even three friends won't be enough and they'll need five because this is where they need, their needs are being met. What is definitely not fine if you have zero good friends. And unfortunately, a lot of Americans are there these days that they have not a single person in, in whom they could confine. Actually, the number is 25%. So a quarter of Americans don't have a single friend in whom they can confide. And this is really bad for your health. Uh, so so, but as long as you do have very close friends, the number is not that important as, you know, just having them and the frequency also of your meeting. So you have to see your friends. If you have a good friend, but you never see them, this is also not good for you. I'm just going to do a little side swerve and say, do you have advice as someone who's who's gone through this research and made changes in her own life about how to handle this moment of, of quarantine? And worry when you can't perhaps hold your hand, hold the hand of a friend um, or be in their presence. I mean, so first of all, you have to, you know, look around you. Maybe there are people with whom you can safely uh, have this kind of relationship and maybe you are not doing it enough. So maybe you live already with someone, either a roommate or uh, your romantic partner, your children, and just make sure that the quality of the relationship is is there. So, you know, sometimes people can live under the same roof and uh, and not really spend the quality time. Uh, Make sure that exactly you hug each other, that you hold hands, that uh, you look into each other's eyes. 
that the quality of the relationship is really there. Um, and if you don't, if you live alone, uh, then there are still ways to connect and some of them are better than others. For example, there is actual research showing that texting is not really good for you. Uh, so for instance, if you call someone, it can be just a regular phone, doesn't have to be video ca- calling, but I, I would assume video would be even better. Um, but the research was on just regular calls. If you hear the word of the other, uh, the voice of the other person, you get a much larger release of oxytocin, so this laugh hormone, uh, than if you get exactly the same message over a text, uh, which means basically that stop texting and start calling people because hearing the voice is really important. And as we know from before, oxytocin also has very direct effects on your health. It also, for example, has anti-inflammatory properties. It also reduces pain. Um, And there there are even some connections with your immune system. So so it's really important um, to to connect as physically as we can in in this kind of uh, situations. That makes sense. That makes sense. Could you tell us a little bit? So the the kind of goal that's in your subtitle, right, is about longevity and aging. And of course, the implied uh, view that you have is you, you just don't simply want to stay alive, right? You want to have a certain kind of quality and robustness and v- vivacity of life. Um, so, so how do you think about what it means to to age? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you measure that with this idea of, of quality, not just, you know, I'm a biotic entity that made it to 106 years? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so sometimes when people hear exactly the subtitle of my book, which is exactly, you know, how friendship, optimism, kindness can help you live to 100, uh, they tell me, but I don't want to live to 100. Uh, so the thing is that it's a common misunderstanding that if you live to 100, you will spend your last three or four decades being infirm and, you know, frail. Uh, of course, it does happen sometimes, but it's, this is more of an of a exception than a rule. Actually, research shows that um, while a typical person who lives to be, let's say, about 80, uh, will spend 18% of their time on Earth ridden by disease, while for people who are super centenarians, so those who live to be 110 or more, that it's only 5%. And one out of 10 of those super centenarians actually escapes disease until the very last three months of their life. So just imagine that you live to be, you know, 110 and you only are infirm for three months. This is absolutely amazing. And the reason for that is the things that make you live long also basically the same things as make you stay healthy. So uh, just the same as with diet and exercise, good diet, you know, prolongs your life, but it also prolongs your health. Uh, So of course you will hear about someone's grandma who, you know, spent four decades in bed, but this is more or less the same kind of story as, you know, my grandpa smoked uh, a packet a day until he was 97 and he never had cancer. It is an exception more than a rule. So you you hit on so many fascinating things in the the book from you know empathy and attachment to you know ideas of happiness to meditation and mindfulness when you did these travels when you had when you participated in self experiments what stood out to you is is sort of these moments where you thought ah here's where 
this research really meshed with my own experience that because you're you're a mother um you have a spouse so you're you're living a life that many of us are living and having the kinds of relationships that we have um where did you see the the research just suddenly opening up in your own life i mean the most fascinating thing i think i've done for for when i was researching growing young was this uh kind of experiment that i did with cooperation with king's college london and i say kind of experiment because you know a sample of one that's not very scientific but i was basically uh reproducing the same methodology or the same kind of experiment that, that, that was done before on much larger samples and uh what we've done was that um we were basically trying to find out how acts of kindness in everyday life impact cortisol, so the stress hormone, which, as we know, also is extremely important for our health. Uh, So um, we've designed an experiment where where over a period of a week, I would measure my cortisol levels um, three times a day. It involved basically chewing all these horrible cotton swabs in the morning, in the <laughs> afternoon, and evening. It was absolutely disgusting. I, I didn't expect that for sure. And then I would collect the samples and keep them in the fridge until the experiment was over and then I shipped them to, uh, to UK. Uh, at the same time, um, I had randomly chosen certain days. There were three days like that or my intervention days where I engaged in a lot of kindness. So I would sit in the morning and make a list of nice things I could do that day. So for example, I would bake cookies and so that my husband could take them to work and share them with his coworkers. Or I picked up trash around my neighborhood or I left a smiley post-it note on the on my neighbor's car. You know, small things like that. Just or let even somebody ahead of me in traffic, but just make sure to be as kind as I could over those three days. Whereas the other four days, I just lived my life as usual. And afterwards, when um, the scientists uh, calculated the levels of my cortisol, uh, how it changed over the span of each day, uh, they could really clearly see on the graphs which days were my kindness days. And bizarrely, even the one of my kindness days was particularly stressful for me for personal reasons. It really didn't show up on my cortisol response. It it was still very healthy, despite all the real stress that I was under, which basically showed us that the kindness offset all the potential stress and really improved their response on the level of my cortisol. We were all really fascinated to just see it so clearly on the graphs. Did your did your personal emotional experience of those days map onto the data? Did you feel differently on your kindness days than you did on your regular days? So definitely it was a lot of fun to do that kindness. It was just pleasurable to just sit down and think about it. But as I've mentioned before, one of those days was really stressful. I was feeling very anxious. It was something completely unrelated to the uh, to the experiment. And yet it didn't affect my body in the way it normally probably would have if I wasn't doing all the kindness. So is is this... How does this link up with this idea of, of mindfulness and meditation and, and yoga? Um, or even you can tell us about the yoga rats. That would be great, right? Um, you know, where you have there, at least, you know, in America, this is sort of understood as this is this moment where I'm going to take over my emotional life by calming down and, you know, emptying out, and this will have, you know, an overall effect. Um, You know, so 
thinking of kind of kindness and yoga in the same room or kindness and meditation in the same room and and is there a difference? Do they overlap? Do they complement one another? Mm -hmm. So they definitely complement one another. So, you know, mindfulness can make us better at relationships. Uh, mind mindfulness is, has been shown to improve marriage, for instance. Uh, it can make us also be more kind. There is, you know, there is uh, loving kindness meditation that can then help us be more kind in our everyday life. But if you were, just to put things into perspective, if you were to do only one thing, then certainly mindfulness meditation per se wouldn't be it uh, if you were for example to sacrifice your friendships for your uh, mindfulness or yoga sessions this is not the way to go because even though mindfulness is important for our health the it's not as important as your friendships or your marriage so just to put in things into perspective but it is mm -hmm. really good for you as well uh, so the yoga res that you mentioned before um the, these were uh, lab rodents uh, that were uh, tested in experiments uh, where they were basically forced to breathe more slowly. Uh, they were put into a contraption that basically taught them how to, with blinking lights, uh, how to uh, breathe more slowly than usual. And after they started breathing more slowly, some of them were put into very stressful, uh, and again, equipment, which uh, has a very wicked sounding name, rodent restrainer, which is basically this kind of claustrophobic tube where they're held for 10 minutes and is generally very stressful uh, for um, rats. And you could see in the experiment that those rats who were trained to breathe more slowly, so kind of in this mindful yoga way, you could say, um, experienced less stress uh, on a physiological level than those who didn't uh, undergo this kind of training. Oh, that's fascinating. Could you tell us a little bit about what empathy looks like through your research? This is something, um, I'm a teacher of, of literature, and we talk about that a lot, that, you know, books create empathy. Um, and so it was it was very fascinating for me to encounter this vision and understanding of empathy that works in yours and how, you know, it works interpersonally and biologically um, and hormonally. Uh, so, so tell us a little bit about empathy, what it does, why we should foster it, especially it's a, it's a very divisive time in the United States at which it seems empathy is shutting down um, all around. Could you speak to us a little bit about the role of empathy and, and why it matters? I mean, certainly, you know, some even uh, talk about empathy crisis, and you could really see it in research, you know, that empathy is plummeted uh, in the West, which is definitely a very bad thing, both for our society and for our health. Uh, on the other hand, as you've said yourself, books are one of the great ways uh, in which we can learn empathy, especially this kind of very emotional books where you can, uh, you can really identify with the main character, right, to see the world through, them, through their eyes, because this is basically what empathy training is to try to see the world through the eyes of another person uh, good movies can also uh, teach you empathy in a similar way uh, when I was writing Growing Young I took a part in, um, in empathy training of children there is this amazing Canadian organization called the Roots of Empathy and basically they go to schools with this program where they take um, a mother with a small baby and the, ch the children, the school children uh, have 
one hour sessions uh, over a certain period um, of several weeks where they visit with the baby, where they observe the baby grow and uh, have to identify the emotions when the baby, for example, starts crying because it gets frustrated. So they have to see why the baby did get get frustrated. Uh, How did the mother respond? They have to really try to see the world through the eyes of the baby. And uh, this is exactly what empathy is, seeing the world through the eyes of another person. And even though part of our how empathetic we are is genetic, so you inherit it from your parents, but it's only part of it. And a large part is still something that we can develop and learn. Uh, I often compare empathy to exercise. You know, we are all born with other uh, with different muscles, right? For example, I will never be Ursain Bolt, and uh, and it doesn't mean I'm not trying to exercise. I'm not trying to run faster or longer, for instance, right? And the same thing is with empathy. Even though you might have been born with not the most empathetic setup, uh, you can still really work on it and develop and become much more empathetic, which is very important for our health, both directly and also through improving our relationships, uh, our our, um, contact with others, our um, kindness, and all the other things we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. Yes. Do you do you imagine um, some sort of empathy intervention that would help the West tremendously um, on an adult level? I mean, there are interventions like that. You know, there, yeah. there are, of course, there are interventions with like medical students or prisoners and so on and so on. But there is also an amazing project. It's uh, it's called the Human Library. I don't know if you've heard about it, but instead of books, you can actually rent humans. So you come to this human library and there are lots of different people there uh, from very different backgrounds. So there can be a refugee, for example, or I don't know, a policeman or just very, very different people. Maybe somebody, uh, a transsexual person, uh, very different people from, you know, for example, from me or you. And you can rent them to talk with them and just have a nice chat and just learn about their lives and try to see uh, how their lives are different from yours. So this is exactly a great way to learn empathy, just to try to step outside of yourself and, uh, and see the world from the, from the perspective of of a very different person. I love how the, the metaphor of the library gets used. It makes, it makes, the empathy that comes through someone else's story become literalized by getting to meet someone else um, mm. directly. Well, so there there are some surprising. Mo- Actually, it's full of surprising moments. I, I want to make sure that listeners hear that. Um, each page, you kind of turn and you go, "Whoa, whoa," <laughs> um, which is part of the fun of the book. But but things that you perhaps wouldn't think by default um, are good for you turn out to be so like working till you drop as you call it you know we think i'm gonna retire and then i'll finally get to take care of myself and i I won't have the stresses of work and i'll be free but but this doesn't seem to bear out in the research and the data that you've encountered I mean, just to clarify, it really also depends on your work. If your work is absolutely horrible, then definitely retirement will be better for you. Uh, but um, what this basically research shows is that retirement is not necess- necessarily good for you. It's really, you know, for some people, uh, especially if they retire in this way that they just, you know, spend their days on the couch and watch Netflix the whole day, uh, that's not a good thing. Uh, because the thing about work is what it gives us is 
social connection on one hand and also some kind of meaning and uh, this is supposed to give us some meaning and some reason to get up in the morning and if by retiring you lose it uh, and you don't replace it with anything else uh, another reason to get up in the morning another reason something to give back to your community another way to connect with other people then indeed it can be bad for your health uh, so this is something I also discovered when I was uh, researching growing young in Japan uh, because they are famously you know not very much into retiring the way we are uh, they even have something they called uh, they call silver hair employment agencies and basically these are employment agencies for elderly people uh, where after retiring from your regular job in marketing or sales or whatever uh, you can come to the silver hair retirement agency and get a job that's easy usually part-time and uh, also usually something that really is connected to giving back to the community so for example you can be a gardener of public uh, spaces or you can be helping children cross streets on the way to school and they don't do it really for the money uh, they do it exactly to be involved to be engaged to be still useful uh, and research does show that this kind of engagement really really helps people uh, stay healthy longer and of course it can be simply volunteering you don't have to be, be paid for a Jap japanese style but just to do something not just sit on your couch with netflix on yeah that that seems horrid that seems like another version of you know being in a hospital bed for four decades um well so can you tell us a little bit about the journey of your own work as an author? You you began, and I remember fondly talking about a book called Meat Hooked, which was about diet, which was about our our sort of Western obsession with meat. Um, and then you kind of moved, as you yourself said, out of just thinking about diet and exercise and and what we're doing with our bodies to this larger uh, vision of what it really means to be a thriving person, um, which involves your relationships, your emotional states, um, basically your, your human interactions. Where are you heading now in your work? So I'm I'm already writing my third book, and I cannot tell say too much about it. I think it's still kind of a uh, trade secret, but it is uh, in a similar spirit to growing young. So kind of an optimistic and hopefully you know hope building kind of type of book, but it's actually on climate change, which kind of I know that those two things, optimistic and climate change, usually don't go together. And I'm of course absolutely not denying climate change. I'm just showing uh, how it can have positive impacts on how we change as a, as a society. Um, so this is something I'm working on right now. Well, I think one of the things that's, that's wonderful about your work is it does change the, the common default narrative um, of how we understand things, whether it's, it's our human relationships or, or the way in which we consume. Um, and so I think having a narrative by you out there of what it might mean to understand climate change uh, will be useful and apt for all of us. I hope so. Well, I, and I also hope that when you do publish it, you'll come back and talk to us. I would certainly love to. Marta, thank you so much for being on the New Books Network. Thank you so much for inviting me, Eric. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Marta Zaraska, author of Growing Young, How Friendship optimism, and kindness can help you live to 100 here on the New Books Network.